You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. All right, so where are we? Here's a quick recap. Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob, right? And after being sold into slavery by his brothers, he was taken to Egypt at the ripe old age of 17. Could you imagine how scared he was as a teenager to be sold into his foreign land? And from there, Joseph had risen to power, second only to Pharaoh himself. Now, I want to share with you all a little bit of history before we go on because when we, whenever we read these passages, and perhaps as you've been reading these passages, we all kind of think of, okay, so Joseph was in like this situation, and now he's here as number two in Egypt. And so all we can think about is that God somehow supernaturally, and, and there certainly was that involved, but it just went from point A to point B. Joseph was somehow just miraculously swept up and placed up into this position of great influence. And so we forget that there's a lot more things involved. There's just a lot more. The life is a lot more complicated, and, and yet God, in, in all the complications here, God is still able to work things out according to his will through the circumstances and even the current events of the world in which we live in, meaning this, God may or may not part the Red Sea for you, but he can certainly direct you around it. Does that make sense? God may or may not part the Red Sea. He may or may not do something crazy, miraculous, like the burning bush or the pillar of cloud and fire. He certainly can. And that's what we keep thinking about Joseph, that somehow he was just kind of swept up into that position. But we'll realize that maybe there's a little bit more. So here's an interesting lesson for us. Before Joseph and Jacob even entered into Egypt, before they were even, even perhaps even alive, there was an influx of Asiatic Semitic slaves who entered into Egypt long, long ago. And so Egypt, like many nations then and even today, they were hardly homogenous, meaning they weren't just one kind of group people group. It was mixed, and it was growing even more diverse with each passing generation, just like America is a melting pot. More and more people are coming in, and people are leaving and coming and going, back and forth. And so this group of people, the Asiatic Semitic people, they settled in the Delta region of Egypt. That's where Goshen was located. And if you recall, that's where the Israelites eventually settled into. And so these people who were called the Hyksos, they began to grow in number in that area. And they acquired more land in that area. And not only that, they began to form and grow their own political coalition, which ultimately meant this, that they were gaining political power too, more of a political presence over that region, this very, very strategic and important region in Delta, in the Delta area. So here's the history here. During a weak point in the history of Egyptian rule or Egyptian politics, the Hyksos, they overthrew the throne. And rather than having a, a native Egyptian take over, a Hyksos Egyptian, if you will, was installed as Pharaoh. Okay? You guys, are you guys following me here? So it is most likely the case that the Pharaoh under whom Joseph served was a Hyksos Egyptian. 
which would then explain why a pharaoh would be eager to install a Hebrew slave into such a high office. Why he would encourage the immigration of Hebrews from this Canaan land into their land. You see, the Hyksos Pharaoh, he wanted as many Palestinians, as many fellow Palestinians in their land. After all, he would much rather trust a fellow Palestinian over a native Egyptian. But more than that, more than any cultural ties, the Pharaoh, he wanted to enhance his political position and his political power just in case the Egyptians try to attempt to regain their power. You guys get that? Right? So he's saying, yeah, come in. You're from my tribe. You're from my region. And so suffice it to say, the Egyptians, they really didn't like this pharaoh all too much. Not really. They didn't look too favorably upon this new influx of people, the Israelites, the Hebrews. Because to them, the Hebrews were a foreign threat. To them, the Egyptians, they, they disliked the Hebrews, they distrusted the Hebrews, and they ultimately rejected the Hebrews because the Egyptians, they deemed the Hebrews as a threat to their national security. Does that sound familiar? Let's not read too much into it. Okay, so how did Joseph get into this position? We know that he interpreted Pharaoh's dream accurately, and the great famine occurred, and so Joseph helped Egypt prepare for it. So the whole region was being ravaged by the famine, and because of it, the rest of Jacob's family has now moved to Egypt, where Joseph was in charge of the only supply of food in that entire area. Now think about how devastating it was for the people. The famine, by the way, famines, they don't say, hey, here's a little bit of me, and then here's all of me. There's no, there's no prevention. It just happens. Do you guys recall when that blizzard happened about six, seven years ago? That massive, I mean, the blizzard, I don't know if you guys are on the highway, I recall uh, my sister and my mom being stuck on the Chambridge Road area, coming back from Tyson's area for about 12 hours. Were you stuck Right? Thank God. This is before I was married. I live in that Glen Apartments. I literally just walked back and forth from work to home. So I was, I was fine. And I was kind of helping people push their cars up. But it was a horrible blizzard. We were just unprepared for it. It just happened. The meteorologists, they didn't even know what was going on. In fact, it happened at 2 o'clock, 2 or 3 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon. Right? So people were at work. And by the time they tried to leave, what happened? They were completely stuck. And so I remember being totally unprepared, and, and I had access to Safeway and everything. I remember around midnight, I actually went to Safeway because I was running out of food because it was just a Tuesday, right? <clears throat> so I went in to the grocery store, and I have never seen a grocery store so empty. It was haunting. It was scary. And so I went into the water aisle, and I stupidly scratched my head thinking, hey, where's the water? <laughs> like, there should be water. But there was no water. Why? Because everyone took it. And so I went to one of the workers and I said, hey, do you have any water in the back? <laughs> he goes, no. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so, I, so I just walked back. There was no food to buy even. I mean, even the canned food, like the green beans that no one wants, that was taken. Everything was taken. Now, here's a lesson. If you ever want to survive some crazy apocalypse, don't ever ask for my help. I am the least prepared person, Okay. <laughs> So it just happened. The people in Egypt, they were starving. The region, the people over there were starving. It was bad news for everyone. But now these verses, it shifts away from that story. It shifts away from Jacob's story. It shifts away from Joseph's life story. And it now turns and tells us about Joseph's administration of the food reserve. So let's take a look here. 
My first point is this. God blesses those who bless his children. God blesses those who bless his children. So from verses 13 through 16, we have Joseph's emergency famine plan. First, he opens up the grain reserves and he sells the grain. People from everywhere are now coming from all places are coming to buy the grain which has now been stockpiled. And before long, the people of Egypt has spent every single dime. They spent all their money. So Joseph, he made Pharaoh super rich because he brought all the wealth outside, inside, into Pharaoh's treasury. But there was one issue. After all that, the famine still wasn't over. So the people, they came back again. But they're even more desperate this time, even more hungry. So in verse 15, they're crying out, give us food or else we'll die. Our money is used up. We have nothing else. And so Joseph, he barters with them. He says, fine, bring your livestock to me. Which, by the way, the people couldn't even feed anyways because they had no grain. So Joseph exchanged the food for cattle. So Pharaoh not only got richer, but now he got to own all the flocks and herds of Egypt. By the way, was there in that area any particular groups of people who were professional cattle caretakers or shepherds? Yes. Let's just say the Hebrews were doing just fine, right? But then again, there was, a, there was an issue. After all that, the famine still wasn't over. So the people, they came back again and even hungrier, and even more desperate. And they're now offering, hey, take our land. In fact, take even our bodies as servants, as slaves in exchange for food. So in verse, verses 20 and 21, we read how Joseph acquired almost all the land except the land that belonged to the priests. And so through all these exchanges, the nation of Egypt was reduced now to a land of servants and slaves to the Pharaoh. And then the famine ended. So after all that, Joseph, he gave the people seed to replant crops on the land that they now farmed as Pharaoh's tenants. And since all the seed and land belonged to Pharaoh, he got all 20% of all the proceeds. In other words, they were taxed 20%. And you're thinking, that is horrible. How about this? As a working professional, I would love to tax only 20%. Right? Whatever. So some of you guys are young. You're like, I don't know what that means. Okay. So it was then that Joseph, he created this feudal system here in Egypt. So after reading and hearing all this, maybe you're thinking, well, you know what? Joseph is kind of a really cruddy guy. How horrible, how dare he capitalize on these poor people? In fact, maybe you're even thinking about that one Facebook post that, that was being just, that was, what's that called? Viraled? I don't know, whatever, right? It was back when the hurricane um, uh, in Houston just ravaged the city, and then there was a store, Best Buy, I believe, that was selling 12 packs of water or 24 packs of water for like $40, $50. And so people are saying, how dare you capitalize on the grief and the suffering of the people? How dare you price gouge this? And so a lot of you may be thinking that right now. Joseph, you're a pretty horrible guy. How can you do this? People are in need. They are suffering. They are hungry. They are desperate. And now you're somehow just taking money from them, taking their lives from them. But according to verses 19-25, get this, the people, were they mad? Were they angry? With it? No, they were grateful. They were grateful. They said, you saved our lives. They cried out, you are the Savior. You, you redeemed us. You helped us. You saved us. You rescued us. You see, the people were warned that famine would come. Remember, Joseph, he predicted this. 
through God's grace, he said, look, we need to prepare for this. He told the entire area. That would, make, that would be a safe assumption. But guess what? The people did not prepare. They were warned, just like the Pharaoh, to do something, to build up reserves. But the people were not prepared, at least certainly not enough where they can have all the food they need for the, for the entire duration of the famine. Like, I'm not trying to politicize the story about the need for government to take a bigger role in our lives to ensure our survival. I am not doing that. But the point is this. If you read the story from beginning to end, the passage is not using the story as a moral flaw in Joseph. The passage is not saying Joseph was some power-hungry, some greedy guy who took advantage of his people and became rich while they became poor. In fact, this text treats Joseph's actions as a good thing. That Joseph, he did a great thing. That he did a moral thing. That he did a godly thing. But the question is, how? Or rather, what's the point of this text then? We know that God blesses those who bless his children. And that's been the point throughout Joseph's entire story. You see, Joseph, he worked for three people during his entire time in Egypt. Joseph worked for Potiphar. Then he worked for the prison warden. And then finally, he worked for the Pharaoh. In chapter 39, the word explicitly says this, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. Not only that, we know from Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 that God, he ble God's blessing upon Pharaoh was because of his promise to his covenant people saying this, God says, hey, whoever blesses you, I will bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse you. Now all you need to do is just follow me here. Because it's more than simply if someone blesses you with $100, that God will somehow bless them with 1000 That's not what we're talking about. So Pharaoh blessed God's people, right? Pharaoh blessed God's people. He blessed Joseph by raising him into a position of power and influence. And twice we're told that Pharaoh also blessed Jacob by giving him the land, the best land on all of Egypt. And the last thing we saw was Jacob appearing before Pharaoh, and then Jacob reverses that blessing and blesses Pharaoh. Remember that? He blesses him not only once, but blesses him twice. And so what did that blessing amount to? Was it just a bunch of godly, empty, just pleasantries? Was it just a mindless God talk? No. So get this. The land of Egypt was preserved when all the neighboring lands were dying. The people of Egypt were preserved while all the neighboring areas and the people were starving. Pharaoh became rich with money. He became rich with livestock. He became rich with land. He became rich with servants, all because of the wisdom that God gave Joseph. And get this, the people were happy. That's crazy. Pharaoh was elevated. He was blessed. And the people were happy. They served him willfully. They served him dutifully. They served him gratefully. This isn't the type of slavery we're accustomed to hearing like in our nation's history. No, this is indentured servitude. They, in, they voluntarily became servants in exchange for food, in exchange for shelter, in exchange for security. Hey, I will serve you. I will work for you. Can you help me out? And so on and so forth. And Pharaoh he gladly took them on. He took them in. And he says, you know what? Yes. And Pharaoh also grew. Now some people read this 
And they think this is about supporting modern Israel in all her troubles. Because Israel is God's chosen people. And those who bless Israel will be blessed by God and so on. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It was true back in the Old Testament, but it's not true anymore. Why is it not true anymore? Why is it not always about just Israel anymore? Because of one name, Jesus. One name. Totally dismantles that entire theory. His name is Jesus. All those promises made to Abraham and his descendants, now all those promises now belong to Jesus. Do you hear that? They belong to Jesus. Remember in Galatians chapter 3, 16, Paul says this, and this is such a key verse. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is the Christ. The blessings are in Christ. The promises are in Christ. So all those promises of blessing to those who bless Abraham's seed now mean blessing those who honor Abraham's greatest descendant, that is Jesus Christ. That's why it changes from God blesses those who bless his children to get this, God blesses those who bless his son. Does that make sense? God blesses those who bless his son. Not offsprings, but offspring who is the Christ. This is not some political point God is trying to make here. It is a worship point. Does it make sense? This whole passage sounds really political. It is not a political point. It is a salvation point. It's not about political pressure. It's about eternal concerns. It's not about being left or right. It's about being straight and true. It's not about the decision of the red or blue party, but rather a proposition of whether Christ is king or not. Is he king or not? Is he savior or not? Is he master or not? God's blessing upon you is the blessing of eternal salvation in Christ Jesus. It's now about siding with modern Israel in hopes that our siding with them will somehow bring change and somehow bring revival in our broken land. No, it's about siding and abiding in Christ so that we can make his name known. Because it's only through his name that change and revival can truly occur in our broken land. Here's my final point. God will make you prosperous no matter what. Everyone say, what? Let me explain before you all start leaving. Hello. Throughout Genesis, God has spoken often about the need for his people to be fruitful and multiply. Turn to your neighbor and say, be fruitful and multiply. I can't believe you said that. That's so inappropriate. He gave that command in Eden. He said it again after the flood. He promised it to Abraham. Then he promised it to Abraham's son, Isaac. Then he promised it to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. There are 12 times that God, he speaks of saying, be fruitful and multiply. But here in Genesis 40, 47, 27, we see this command and his promise actually fulfilled. It reads, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. But even more interesting is the context in which the statement is made. So hear me out. So the people of God, where were they before they entered Egypt? The promised land, weren't they? They were already in the promised land, if you recall. 
They were in Canaan, the promised land, forget this, at least 215 years. And they were 70 people strong. You can get that from the previous chapter. They were about 70 people strong. One would think it would be there in the promised land that God would bless them. Wouldn't it make sense for them to be in the land that God wanted them to be, where God would allow them to flourish and be prosperous and to have everything just amazing in their lives? But it wasn't. It was on foreign land, the land where the native people hated them, the land that was not their own, and yet that was where God had prospered them and built them into a great nation. So we often think that times of prosperity and peace would be the most conducive for our growth. You think that if your life was a little bit easier, a little bit better, that you had a better job, a better wife, a better, a better husband, a better family situation, a better just circumstance that would be conducive to your spiritual growth, that you'd be doing better. I wish life would be better so I could be better. It makes sense in our minds, doesn't it? But when did God's people grow the most? It was when life sucked. Do you hear me? During a time of terrible famine is when God prospered them. In verse 13, Canaan and Egypt, they're being wasted away. You would think that the people of God would prosper when other people are prospering. When people around you, your employees, your company, your family, when they're doing well and they're growing and prospering too, then you would prosper. But we see from this chapter that it was a hard life all around. The Egyptians were reduced to servitude, and yet somehow God in his infinite love and grace and mercy preserved his people and prospered them. Do you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of what's going on in China. You see, when the missionaries entered China during the 19th and, tw- and, and the early 20th century, there was relative peace. You know that? Relative peace. That was until communism took over in the 1950s. But get this, around the end of that peace period of peace, when there was no real, um, at, you know, no, no real issues or, or opposition, the Christians there from the missionaries had approximately grown to about 840,000 Christians, which is amazing. And remember, that was a time when the church had no real opposition. That was when the time when the church had no real adversity. But get this, after four decades of persecution, four decades of oppression, four decades of just communist rule, the church in China numbered, get this, approximately to this day, over 50 million followers of Jesus Christ. From 840,000 of relative peace to over a half a century of persecution and oppression to now that of 50 million people who will be parting with us in eternal glory in the presence of our God. So you tell me, what is prosperity? What is prosperity? It is time for us to redefine that word in our lives. In your seemingly impossible situation, whatever that might be, where it seems hopeless, where you seem discouraged, know this, God, he put you there. He put you there, just like he put Jacob's family in Egypt, because your present circumstance may seem that things are, may not seem that things are all too conducive to your growth and well-being, but God, he will use this time of famine in your life. He will use this time of famine in your life to prosper you. 
He will use this time of famine to grow you and grow you and mold you and shape you because even while the Egyptians were starving, God was somehow still protecting and ensuring the prosperity of his people. Are you God's people? That is his promise to you. Meaning this, at the end of the day, are you willing to trust and follow God? When life is bleak and there are no options, are you still willing to trust and follow God one step at a time, one day at a time, moment by moment? This is not a promise of deliverance from your circumstance. This is a promise of God's presence with you in the midst of your circumstance. I'd rather have the fullness of God in the midst of my brokenness than be all alone with my fleeting treasures. How about you? The prosperity we are promised is not more wealth, but more God. It's not more health, but more contentment in Christ. It's not receiving more love from people, but extending more love that we have found in Christ to others. You see, folks, you're far more prosperous than you can ever imagine because this is the end. In Christ Jesus, don't you know how blessed you are? Don't you know how blessed you are? You have him. means you have everything. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful reminder of your truth. And yet, at the same time, it, it, it magnifies just how, how far removed we are from, from understanding what, what your promises mean to us. That we have define prosperity and what the good life is through the lens of the world and and it has only brought us more shame, more emptiness, more brokenness. God, I pray that all of us here, we're, we're going through something in our lives. Some sort of famine, if you want to call it that. But Lord, I pray that you remind us that we as your people will be prosperous despite the famine, that you are in the name, you are in the game of blessing us, not in terms of rescuing us or giving us wealth and, 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 and winning the lottery. No, Lord, help us to understand that your presence is more than enough. Help us to receive your grace and embrace your grace. We are desperate, Lord, for you. May we never lose sight of that. So brothers and sisters, let's take a moment just, just to pray our own prayer. The Lord is speaking. His word has spoken. Let's take a moment just to pray, and then we'll go into our final song.